Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, hey Christopher. I want to tell the people what they're listening to. This is a show that digs into one of the most amazing interview archives in all of popular music. I do not think that is any exaggeration. And the good man to my left, or are you to my right today, um, Tom has this uncanny ability to dig through all of this stuff and pull out these gems, little bits of the best interviews that you may have heard some of, but not all of for sure, and it's so great to hear them once again from all different eras of music. Well, thanks, Christopher. I'm not sure my ability is uncanny. My ability is just time-consuming. <laughs> we, I have to dig through <laughs> yeah. some of these. And once again, we've we talked about this before. A lot of the, the CDs or tapes or dats or cassettes are not labeled in a, uh, in a way that's very helpful at all. In fact, some of them are not labeled or, or they're labeled with unknown artist. And I have to listen to them and try to make sense of them to figure out who they are are and it really is a lot of work but being the music geek that i am i like listening to them and guessing who they are and once i guess who they are i'm just so excited it's like playing rock and roll jeopardy for me i just enjoy it so much and i can feel your excitement by email when you send me these clips too (laughs) (laughs) and among the many interviews that we um have in the archives are a few interviews with Elton John. And we've aired mm. an interview with Elton John from, I would guess, around this, this this same era, from his heyday in the 70s. But I found a whole bunch of other clips, and we're kind of cobbling them together. But they're so good. In fact, if you saw the movie Rocket Man, which I did and I thought was sensational, um, you will... No, kn- I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. Well, you will know um, that the story, what he's saying in these clips rings true to the story of Elton John, including why he changed his name from Reggie Dwight. And so there's so much in this. Elton John from his heyday in the 70s, that's still to come on Famous Lost Words. What else have we got this week, Tom? Well, Christopher, as the years progress, we lose more and more of the artists from the past. And one that we lost a few months ago was Eddie Money. We have a great interview with Eddie from around the time of his breakout in the late 70s. And it's just about everything that you would want in an interview from an artist who has just passed away. It's informative, it reflects his personality, and there are moments that are simply so profound and moving in hindsight that they almost serve as an epitaph for him. Really great interview with Eddie Money coming up. We also have an excellent interview with Carly Simon. Carly is such an interesting artist. She's confessional, she's vulnerable, she's very insecure to the point of being terribly hurt by critics, and she's also very kind to fans. There's a great story here of her spending the afternoon with a bunch of fans that ran into her on the street. Carly Simon's still to come on Famous Lost Words, but let's get started with Elton John. There you go. There you go, Elton John and Crocodile Rock on Famous Lost Words. Yeah, you like that one, don't you? I could see you dancing. It was the falsetto part. Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm good at that. I caused that. Yeah. In case anyone had forgotten, Elton is one of the greatest interview subjects in pop music, as well Mm -hmm. as being uh, a pretty fine recording artist and songwriter. He's witty, he's wise, self-effacing, and revealing by turns, and it's all on display in uh, the series of clips from a few different interviews that I believe are all from the early 70s, Mm -hmm. certainly no later than the release of Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy in 1975. Here, 
He talks about loving ballads but having to lighten up. Lyricists he admires, aside from his longtime writing partner, Bernie Toppin, his name change, and so much more. Elton starts off with the idea that, hey, what's wrong with a good ripoff? That's right, and the song they're talking about here is one we just heard, Crocodile Rock. I wanted to make a record that had the influences of like the Del Shannons and the Pat Boons of the 1950s and 60s. And uh, Bernie wrote this lyric, which can only be one of those type things. And uh, so we just got it together and we got the nice sort of clicky guitar sound in the middle. It sounds like Dwayne Eddy. And uh, there's an Eddie Cochran riff there somewhere. It's just a, a complete... Someone asked me a stupid question and said, don't you think it's a bit of a rip-off? And the whole record's a total rip-off, but that's exactly... It's just a tongue-in-cheek, you know. People just break up when I start going, la, 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 because it's, you know, it's Speedy Gonzalez, isn't it? Um... It's just a turnout. I was fed up with the, with Rocket Man. It was a really good record. I wasn't ashamed of it. Or I've never been ashamed of anything I've done, but I just wanted to get out of the rut of producing slow-plodding singles, which seemed as if I was getting into that sort of thing. What do you think about that idea, that it's okay to rip things off, that it's, it's all just in the bucket of rock and roll? You well, you need. I mean, when he says rip things off, that's one thing. I think what he means is being influenced by. When he created Crocodile Rock, which I think is a, in, in his whole pantheon, is one of the most lightweight records there is. But it was so catchy and it was a big hit and it was kind of what he needed at the time to kind of change this image of him from being only the guy who wrote your song. So I think that, uh, I don't know, I, I think that it was good. He used the influence very well and created something uh, new out of it. It sounded new to me. Well, it became his first U.S. and Canadian number one, so he was doing something right, huh? Exactly. All right, next up. Do you get a personality transplant along with a name change? Reggie Dwight was uh, something I really wanted to get rid of. You know, it's just a horrible... I didn't have that particularly good memories of being Reg. So uh, uh, I'm totally Elton John. I mean, so, uh, I, you know, Reg Dwight's just like a bad dream, really. I never had any luck being Reg Dwight. But I'm Elton John. I've been pretty lucky. That is a great <laughs> clip, and it speaks to his story, which is now well-known and very well-told in the movie Rocket Man. His era, his time as Reginald Dwight or Reggie Dwight was not a happy one, and boy, oh boy, you know, the, the things that um, were said to him by his parents and the way they reacted to him uh, was, was very tough indeed. And, you know, the actress who played his mom was Bryce Dallas Howard, Ron Howard's daughter. She played his mom, and when she read the script she actually thought it might be too mean towards the mom so she asked around the people who knew elton's mom and they said oh no no that's she was actually much worse than this (laughs) really (laughs) yes yeah and so he you can see why he needed to get away and why he uh why he changed his name well he is ever changing Mm -hmm. even to this day and tom to your point that he didn't want to be locked into being a balladeer Elton says he doesn't want to repeat himself, and he won't name the names of artists who do. <laughs> and then he does name names. <laughs> a lot of people who have been in successful positions, I mean, I'm not naming names, but some people put out the same albums five times in a row. And, and uh, if you notice, I could, uh, as I say, name names, but I'm not going to because I'm quite a generous person. But you see, the albums start off at number one, and the next one gets to eight, the next one gets to 15, because it's the same backtrack, the same song all over again. And uh, I don't think, you, you know, people just get a bit fed up with that. And that's a shame because Neil Young made, used to make really great albums and now it's, um, you know, it's, it's a shame. I just think people, you see a lot of musicians don't listen to other people's music. You'd be surprised the amount of people that um, 
listen to uh, <laughs> nothing else but themselves, and I never listen to myself. So uh, um, I think that's an important factor too. You know, if I'm in a car and I hear something like that I haven't heard for a long time, for example, we were in Japan in January or February, I can't remember, it's such a long time ago now, uh, and we had the Don't Shoot Me album, someone had an eight track, and I hadn't listened to it since we made it, more or less, apart from Daniel and Crocodile Rock, which you were on the radio quite a lot. And it really sounded good, and I was really surprised, and uh, that cheered me up. Um, but I never, after an album's been out two or three months, I don't want to know, because the process of making an album, getting it out, you're so fed up with it by the time it comes out. John Lennon once said, if you could make an album one day and get it released the next, it would be the ideal situation for an artist, because it's true. Because by the, For example, we made this album in June, uh, Captain Fantastic, and as I've, everyone's not allowed to hear it. Nobody's heard it since we've done it. Otherwise, if we'd have kept listening to it, by the time it comes out next June, we'd be so fed up with it. I mean, it would be just a real drag. Oh, good one. When rock stars attack, Elton John takes on Neil Young. But I also want to juxtapose the shot he takes at Neil there with what he said about music at the very end, that about music that is immediate, right? So, like mm-hmm. how, how John Lennon said, wouldn't you love to just release the song the next day? So, when Neil was in Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, he wrote the song Ohio. They recorded the song right. very quickly in late May, I think late May 1970, and they released it as a single a matter of days later. So, maybe that's yeah. what Elton and John Lennon are saying in that is that ideal situation, and that's very, very rare indeed. Well, now, of course, that's exactly what artists do. Rather than have to work their way through the entire sort of lumbering system of the record business, they can create at home and simply upload something the second that they're done. So in that way, Lennon was way ahead of his time, as usual. Yeah, that's interesting. It never occurred to me that that's the case now. But we do receive, um, you know, the the finished recordings by email, whether it's by, uh, you know, a WAV file or an MP3 or whatever it is. We certainly do get them fast. Changing gears, Elton here talks about after-show loneliness. Me, very lonely sometimes, yeah. After gigs. And it's just come back here, and it's. Uh, I don't like going out after gigs too much because there's nothing. You, it's always an anticlimax, and you sit there in the hotel and you think, God, there we are. We've just done twenty thousand people, but I, no way my mind could go out into the streets and and go anywhere because I just want to. You know, I do get lonely a lot of times, um, but after a gig, I just like to stay in, and there's nothing I can do. I sometimes we get invited out to a press reception in our honour, uh, but. It's not the same. There's nothing that can take the place of actual playing on stage and that, that whole feeling when you come off stage. Oh, that's so interesting. I think that time after a gig is when so many big stars get into trouble. That loneliness post-gig leads to a lot of bad decisions from drugs to promiscuity. And some people would say that's where the fun is, but boy, I think that I think it all starts with loneliness. Mm. All right, Tom, give it up for the Canadians. Elton names his favorite artists. In my early career as Elton John, I suppose um, at that period of time I was influenced by people like, uh, I've always been influenced by the Rolling Stones and obviously like Lennon and McCartney. Uh, but probably the band, uh, when they first came out with music from Big Pink, that uh, was a very big influence, I think, on a lot of people. Um, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, people like that. Um, they influenced us a great deal when we made Empty Sky, that album. There's a couple of songs on it that are very Leonard Cohen-ish and also um, there's a, a very Stones-ish thing on it, Empty Sky. So uh, those were probably the biggest influences. But the band, I think, changed a lot of people's uh, thoughts on uh, 
on recording because I think that music from Big Pink was one of the finest albums of all time. So many people cite the band as a huge influence, and if you're a big fan of the music of the band, there's a new documentary out called Once We're Brothers, which tells the story of Robbie Robertson and the band, and it debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I hear it's great, and I can't wait to see it been a lot of stuff about the band in the last couple of years of course mm-hmm. robbie's autobiography which was fantastic i think both of us agree one yep. of the best autobiographical rock books ever yep. and this movie is based on that oh okay mm-hmm. well i gotta see it um and then there was the 50th anniversary release of music from big pink which was just oh, breathtaking yeah love that elton loves great lyricists lyrically who i my i like uh, i think jackson brown and Joni mitchell lyrically are probably the best uh uh, that I could think of at the moment. Okay, so he mentions Joni Mitchell there, and I know that Joni and Neil Young were uh, admirers of each other's work. At one point in the early 70s, Neil said to Joni, I should be opening for you. But I've also heard that Neil was actually shocked by how nakedly honest and revealing Joni was in her songwriting. So that's very interesting. And Elton really did love the Canadians, and uh, as well as he, as he mentions there, Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm, who's one of my favorite songwriters, mm-hmm. and falls stylistically somewhere between the two, I think. Yeah, yeah. Here's one of those oops predictions that artists just can't help but make. You know, I like living from day to day and uh, not knowing what's going to happen is part of the fun of this whole thing. So um, I'd like to be involved with the soccer club, you know, I'd like to become chairman one day. And uh, I've, I've, I'll always be concerned with music in some aspect, whether it be with a record company or producing or singing. But I, doubt, I doubt if I'll be performing when I'm 45, um, because, you know, I can't really see me touring for that much longer. I mean, in that, for that amount of time. <laughs> Someone in Detroit yesterday in the coffee, coffee bar said that they thought I was 53. <laughs> And they said, when you wrote 60 years on, were you being optimistic? <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll still be connected with music and hopefully sport and just still hang in there somewhere. <laughs> so he's not yeah. sure he's going to be performing after 45. So many clips in our archives with artists saying much that same thing. But at that point in time, rock and roll was still a young person's game. And I'm certainly glad that the Stones, Elton John, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac have stayed active because it's great to see them. And as long as they want to play and as long as they can... I think they should, and I, I don't I don't like the naysayers who think that just because someone gets up there close to 80 or whatever, that they need to pack it in. Wait till you're 79, pal, and see how you feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, in this clip, Elton John talks about all those slow songs. The Elton John album, when it came out, was very confusing because the cover threw a lot of people. They thought I was going to be mo- uh, very moody and just sit at the piano because it was a very moody cover. But basically, we've always been rock and rollers at heart. I like singing sl- slow songs last more than fast songs as far as uh, uh, longevity goes um, and they're sort of more satisfying to sing on record because you know you can give more of a performance on a slow song unless you're a jagger or someone who's an, an artist at singing really fast songs well um, but uh, well, basically I've always, always been a rock and roller because I grew up with Jerry Lewis and Little Richard and people like that so uh, I think that the album cover really threw a lot of people You know I remember hearing your song and being blown away by it too and then seeing the album cover because so often i mean pre-video that helped to form your idea of who the artist was what their (laughs) kind of identity was right Right. yeah but then and and then like so many people i was really surprised by the rest of the album what did you think i don't think i know that first album as it as it is as an entity i kind of know his greatest hits that's how i you know had my elton Uh. john collection 
but it is interesting that he says that the slow songs last longer than fast songs as far as longevity goes. But I would I would counter with the fact that a lot of his fast songs uh, still sound great to this day, but they're not. They're not, as he suggests, as good as the slower ones are. Well, he was a hit machine for mm-hmm. so many years, yeah. but he also was an album artist. Your homework today is to go home and listen to Tumbleweed Connection. Okay. <laughs> it's a great record. <laughs> okay. Here he talks about a song that he just had to write for L.A. People. That's right. And in this clip, he's referring to The Bitch's Back. Significance behind it is always just uh, a song about the, uh, I don't know, really. It's about me, about anybody who's got a couple of drinks and... Uh, you know, you go out with people and you uh, talk about people and you gossip. And uh, it's just about uh, people that make, you know, very trendy people who uh, are into everything, like uh, the latest craze, they'll do it. And uh, it's, it's very L.A. song, really. It's, a, it's very much a Los Angeles song. There's a lot of people like that in Los Angeles. Here, Elton talks about the need to stay fresh. You need to kick up the uh, rear uh, quite a few times. And we've David Johnson gave us the kick up the rear on the Honky album. And uh, I think now Ray Cooper's joined the band. He's given us another kick up the rear because I think you you, you can be lethargic, and uh, you have to stay one step ahead of the time. And uh, I think this is probably why our records do get accepted is because we're always trying to. I don't want to bring out a single that sounds exactly the same as the last two or three. Okay, so you have to admit that from 1970 to 76, Elton had an incredible run of hit singles. Your Song, Leave On, Tiny Dancer, Rocket Man, Crocodile Rock, Daniel, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I know you don't like that song so much, Christopher. Uh, <laughs> uh, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Candle mm. in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, The Bitch is Back, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Philadelphia Freedom, Someone Saved My Life Tonight, Island Girl, Pinball Wizard, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, and Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word. Okay, that list is amazing and they all sounded different so much artistry in all that commercial success well he talks about one of those songs you mentioned and one of my personal favorites called don't let the sun go down on me and um i i love the fact that he just has a mea culpa moment and says i don't know how to pick a single i make all the wrong choices but he did love this song usually when it comes to picking singles i'm the worst um, if it was left to me, I'd have no single success at all because I always pick the wrong ones. Um, but Don't Let the Sun was one of my things. I, I said I insisted that it was the single. People said, no, 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 Bitches Back should be the first single. I said, no, 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 Don't Let the Sun. And in England, of course, it staggered up to an amazingly high position of about 20. <laughs> and it was uh, my weakest ever seller. And I thought, oh, God, you know, trust me. Whenever I do anything, I put my foot in it. Uh, but I still had tremendous faith in it. and. I knew that it was a do- I mean, it's a very long record, right? Very slow. It takes about a minute and a half, two minutes to get to the chorus. And suddenly I began to get paranoid. And then, uh, I mean, in, as far as radio stations go, it was the quickest ever mass acceptance of a record I've ever had. And that really, I mean, I had to think about that one in the States because uh, I, I thought it was going to be a little hard to get the record played, you know? Um, because of, because of its length and because you know it's a slow record. I love that song too, Christopher. And I'd like to point out that George Michael and Elton had a big hit with mm. a live version of that song, which is fantastic. Yeah, isn't that the song they did at Live Aid? Yeah. And I remember just from a songwriter point of view, noticing how long it took to get to the chorus. And he mentions it takes like a minute and a half or something. I mean, that was just completely against what everything in radio stood for, which is get to the hook. Get to the chorus, you know, because yeah. we had that hammered into us. But yeah, mm-mm. for sure. That long piano intro and all those great verses before the chorus. That's absolutely right. Yeah. 
Elton tells the story of yet another unlikely hit single. We were recording in January at Caribou, making the Caribou album, and uh, Yellow Bit Road was beginning to slide down the charts, and they wanted to take another, MCA wanted to take another single. And I said, well, it's got to be Candle in the Wind. I mean, there's just no other choice. It's got to be Candle in the Wind. And they said, well, we're thinking of releasing Benny and the Jets. And I said, you've got to be crazy. In no way will you... I said, no way, no way. Benny and the Jets, you're mad. I mean, God, I thought it was going to be the bomb of all time. So then I get a frantic call two days later from um, MCA. Listen, CKLW or so-and-so in Detroit, it's, it's, the black stations are playing it. So of course that immediately appealed to my ego. Black stations are playing my records. Um, <laughs> so I, and they twisted my arm and did a whole number. And uh, it was true, it broke, it, it, was, it broke through black stations first of all. And I, I said, well, you know what you're doing, put it out. I said, listen, this is your woe beside you. It's a terrible bomb, I'm never gonna forgive you. So they put it out and it was my biggest ever single ever. So it shows you how much I know, I, don't, I know nothing. And that really fascinated me because uh, I would never in a million years, there's about six other tracks off the Yellow Brick Road album I said would have been more suitable as singles than, than Benny and the Jets. And there you go. I couldn't believe it. I was so stunned by the success of that record. <laughs> Great story, and it obviously expanded his audience. From the eight times platinum Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Benny wow. and the Jets. Wow. And, and that, by the way, was his most successful record, unless you count... The Lion King. Yeah, and that Lion King was absolutely huge. That's Elton John from his heyday in the 70s, and of course his current farewell tour continues through the end of 2020, more than 250 shows in total. I've got two tickets to paradise, won't you pack your bags for me tonight? I've got two tickets to paradise, I've got Oh, one of the best songs of the late 70s, Two Tickets to Paradise, Eddie Money on Famous Lost Words. Go ahead, Christopher. Tom, the late Eddie Money was born in Brooklyn as Edward Mahoney. His attempt to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather, father, and brother and join the NYPD was short-lived. <laughs> Eddie claimed he couldn't imagine himself with short hair. His band at the time couldn't imagine a cop in the group, so he got tossed. So in, the, in 1968, he moved to the Bay Area, and he met legendary producer Bill Graham, who became his manager and got him a deal with Columbia. So Eddie's debut album was released in 77 and started him on the road to being one of the signature voices of the next decade. The album contained the hits Baby Hold On and your favorite, Two Tickets to Paradise. Two Chickens. Double Platinum in the U.S. It's Two Chickens to Paralyze. <laughs> I've got two chickens to paralyze. Um, Adam... <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> um, his uh, fourth and final platinum album, Can't Hold Back. Do you want to have a, have a go at that one? <laughs> well, uh, was released in 86 sure. and included the hit Take Me Home Take Tonight. Take Me Home Tonight. A, this, this was inevitable. Uh, featured a guest vocal from Tom Jokic of the Ronettes <laughs> singing a line from her biggest hit, Be My Baby. <laughs> Ronnie Spector. Beautiful. Uh, the single went to number four on Billboard. Money got a Grammy nomination, mm -hmm. but not a Grammy. Um, and looking back in recent times, his sense of perspective remained as grounded as ever. He kind of felt like he'd missed out on the whole enchilada, the big superstardom thing and the big dough. But he said, quote, the kids aren't in jail or rehab. Nobody's wrecked the car this week. And there's still milk in the fridge. I'm having a good month. Oh, that's great. That's great. And you know, when we heard that Eddie had passed away, I immediately went into the archives and dug this out. And these are great clips. It's so great to hear him yeah, they are. kind of at the very beginning of his career. But there's a certain 
it's kind of profound to hear him talk because he actually talks about how he wants to be remembered on in this last clip. So this is uh, great stuff and, and very moving to hear in light of Eddie's recent passing. He starts the interview by talking about life as an opening act. I've been working with Alice Cooper, and Santana's working about four days a week. And when, when he works, I'm on, the, I'm on the gig with them. But if not, like I played in front of uh, 6,000 people last night in Youngstown, Ohio. I'm, I'm pretty big in the Midwest, and uh, we had our own show, which is great because we do it an hour and a half. And uh, I just got back from Europe, and I'm a little spoiled. I really like playing as much material of mine as possible because that's why I travel two, 3,000 miles to play rock and roll, you know? That's what I've been doing for 10 or 15 years. And it's kind of hard doing a 35, 45-minute set. But then again, working with somebody with, you know, like Santana, who I've been influenced by by years, and Jimmy Lyon, my guitar player, loves him. Uh, it's great. He's a real gentleman. And the rock and roll and his trip are really different, and it's more of a, a, of a compatible build. And a lot of the guys in the band are friends of mine. Like, for example, Chris Soberg, the uh, rhythm guitar player for Santana, I've been working with. He used to be the bass player in a group called The Rockets when I was a man of a thousand demos. Before CBS signed me, Chris was my bass player. And I know a lot of the guys. And the bass player in Santana used to work for me, too. So, um, you see, I was, I was really kind of knocking around in the Bay Area for a long time. You know, like some of the guys from Pablo Cruz worked work with me or for me, whatever you want to put it. Some of the guys in Santana work with me. And... Everybody says, well, you're crazy, Eddie. You'll never make it. But, uh, I mean, it takes a bit going good for me, you know. <laughs> I work with Alice Cooper. You can, you can hear the pros and cons there of working as a warm-up act. And you get to be exposed to a yeah. larger audience when you do that. But you can't play your set. It's just so much shorter. But, man, I love Eddie. Alice Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, is that I love his humility. I mean, he didn't even see himself as a rock and roll star. It's like being a rock and roll star is like being a star for two or three years and then it's gone. Well, I've never been a rock rock and roll star, and I really feel like a Helen Reddy or Donny Osmond's a rock and roll star. I kind of feel like an accepted, an accepted artist somewhere in the middle of the charts, which is a comfortable feeling for me because... I really don't want the whole pie. I just want a piece of it, you know. It's great that he realizes his place in the grand scheme of things. He's not cocky about it, just like you said at the beginning of this interview. Now, is he really saying that true rock stars are people like Helen Reddy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I wonder how he meant that. So in the next segment, Eddie talks about growing up in New York and moving to San Francisco. Well, I hang around with a lot of New Yorkers. Bill Graham, my manager, is from New York, and a lot of people in CBS, the big uh, Black Rock in uh, Manhattan. I don't know. New York is home sweet home for me. I grew up there, and uh, I don't I don't want to say I'm from the gutter. I'm from about five steps back and uh, four, four houses down to the right. But, yeah, New York's a good town for me. There's a really good rock and roll thing happening in New York these days, it seems like. Do you find yourself wanting to go back there and work out of New York instead of San Francisco at all? Well, I'll tell you the truth, uh, Rick. Working out of San Francisco, uh, coming from the rat race rock and roll world of New York, it's kind of difficult, but like a lot of my energy and a lot of I learned from like uh, a Bob Dylan or then again from an Otis Redding or Johnny Taylor or going to the Murray Decay shows and seeing the Shangri-Las or seeing, uh, you know, Otis Redding and just seeing uh, Smokey Robinson or seeing uh, Little Anthony Imperials. Uh, I've been singing rock and roll and I, I, I sang in an acapella group in Brooklyn when I was a kid and it's, it's kind of like in my blood. And San Francisco and California is kind of sleepy for me, you know. 
I always felt like I was going to come back to the East Coast, you know. Right. One, one thing I like about the California reality is what you do and what you accomplish, uh, you can be proud of and you can get recognition for it. The same way in the Midwest. New York is a cold, uh, smutty town, and uh, it doesn't really represent uh, the whole country. It's kind of like a cutthroat vibe. And uh, I love New York because I'm from there, and I'm very proud of being from there, and I'm glad I'm a go-getter and I made it, but I don't think I'd ever really want to move back there. To tell you the truth, I'd like to move uh, maybe to either Oregon, or I'd like to really, I don't want to get anybody mad at me for being an intruder, but I would really, I love Canada because there's a lot of land up here, and the fishing's really good, and I'd kind of like to buy some land in Canada. Oh, I love this guy. He's so New York, so unassuming, which is weird, a weird dichotomy, and he really pays tribute to his heroes. Also, I want to give a shout-out in this interview to the guy who did the interview. His name is Rick Ringer, a great broadcaster and uh, and a friend of mine on Facebook. I contact uh, I chat with Rick all the time. He's done some of our best interviews. He sure has. Um, did you catch the comment about Canada, how he's thinking about getting a place in Canada because yeah. the fishing's yeah, real good? I love the fishing, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, here's that blue-collar attitude that Eddie Money was known for. We always wanted to make records that sounded like the band rather than going into a studio to make a record that doesn't sound like the band and then have the band sound like the record is like creating a Frankenstein monster. It's not my kind of rock and roll. I wanted the record to sound like the band. And I like my band. They're kind of younger, and uh, they all got kind of stars in the rise like me. We're all kind of like on the way up, and we don't get triple scale, and we don't make $90,000 a year and show people how we resodded our blue turf lawn, you know, or look at the new swimming pool, or look at my Excalibur in the driveway. That's really not part of my reality. I'm not really in the whole business for the money. I'm in it for, like, I want more out of life than a tombstone, you know. Not that I want the gold records. I just want, like, my mother or maybe my, my godson or my nieces and nephews to know that, you know, hey, you know, I was a recording artist for a couple of years. I don't really trust this business. I just love it. Ah, there you go. Like I said, that last clip sounded almost like an epitaph at the end, a perfect way to finish this segment. Boy, oh boy. By the way, by the time Eddie passed away, he had five kids. Biggest hit, Carly Simon and Your Sylvain on Famous Lost Words. Tom, at the time of this interview in 1976, Carly Simon was rock royalty. She'd had a string of hit singles and albums, and her marriage to fellow singer-songwriter James Taylor kept her in the press, and the controversy surrounding her biggest hit, Your Sylvain, was water-cooler subject matter for years. Simon is the daughter of Richard Simon founder of the Simon & Schuster publishing empire, and began her career in a modest way, recording with her sister Lucy as the Simon Sisters. Her 1971 debut won the Grammy for Best New Artist. Her third album, No Secrets, went to number one on the heels of You're So Vain. In 1989, she became the first artist to win a Grammy, an Academy Award, and a Golden Globe for a song written and performed by one artist for the song Let the River Run, from the film Working Girl. Yeah. And I have an obscure detail, and I know you love those. <laughs> you know the song Anticipation? Yes. Anticipation. Okay. She wrote that song in 15 minutes while she was waiting to be picked up for a date with Cat Stevens. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, she did one of the most rare of things, and that is a pre-taped SNL performance because of stage fright. Hmm. And yes... 
At least one verse of your Sylvain was written for Warren Beatty. The other two verses? Hmm. Yet to be revealed. You know, Christopher, you know what you and I have in common? What's that? We are probably the only two people in the universe who are not suspected of being the subject of one or two of the verses in that song. So many people have been listed as the possibility for uh, who she's singing about in that song. Well, that's because neither one of us are guilty of vanity. That's Otherwise, we'd be right in there. <laughs> Hang on, I have to this, check myself this, in the mirror. This interview was from 1976, around the time of Simon's seventh album called Another Passenger, an album which got mm, a tepid commercial reception, but which Rolling Stone called Carly Simon's best record. Mm-hmm. Here she talks about, are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. Taking fans for lunch. I remember last summer, I was, at, I was in a very low kind of mood that I'd been in for about two or three weeks just about my music and, and, and about myself. And I was walking down the street where, where I live in, on uh, the Cape, and, and a bunch of girls had followed me and had stopped me and, and said, uh, you know, how much they liked me and so forth. And I just, I was so happy that I took them all out to, out to eat in this little place and we just talked for about... I mean, I was just so thrilled really? that they had actually, yes, and, and I, wanted to, I wanted to find out about them. I always think it's so one-sided when somebody tells me that they like me or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, figured that if they're at all interesting, and you know how you can tell in a second whether you want to get to know somebody sure. or not, but if they're at all interesting and I'm turned on by them in any way, I want to find out what they do, too. You know, oh, that's really nice, and I bet, they, I bet they're still talking about that, you know, because that's a rarity. I don't know how young they were, but I'm, I'm sure that there was a lot of, no, you ask her, no, you ask her, go on, you know. Maybe, And then yeah. you turn out to be a real, in fact, human being that takes them out and buys them. Lunch would really have to blow somebody's mind. That's, that says a lot for you. I, I don't always do that. <laughs> Anytime anybody wants to go like... to lunch, look up Carly and she'll <laughs> no, lay a compliment on her and it's good for a free meal. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it, I'm in the wrong mood and I, you know, I'm busy or whatever, but... Yeah. But it, but it never ceases to, to please me and flatter me when somebody tells me that, that they like my work. Oh, my. Isn't, Isn't that, that the best story ever? That's I love great. That. Yeah, that's so charming. Artists, Simon included, frequently have thin skin. Critics. Oh, critics. Oh, critics. Where, where are they coming? What is that? <laughs> How they worry me. Yeah. Do they? Yes. Do they get to you? Terribly. Why? Because... Uh, because I guess I don't have a, have enough sense of myself a lot of the time, and so I, so very often my opinion of myself has to do with what some, somebody else thinks of me, and very often it's what the latest person thinks of me or what the latest critic thinks of me or says. And I, I mean, every artist is that way to a certain degree. Every performer that I know has a kind of ego that's about to topple over, and that's one of the reasons why they're out there in, in the first place is is to try to gain some kind of love, I think, on a larger scale than, than what they got from their parents or what they got from their extended family or whatever. And so performers, as, as, as a rule, really want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved, but, but performers need it to the extent that they really go out and get it on a, on a, on a professional level. And so I think, I think almost, I mean, all the performers that I know are very affected by what what the critics say. Some of them make believe that, you know, or say that they really don't, that they really don't care, whatever, but I've never met a, a person who in the, 
who in the in the deep dark honesty of their of their soul doesn't just crumble on under the under yeah. the nasty pins of some nasty critics or some good or some well-meaning and good and good critics who just honestly don't like what they're doing wow that's interesting i don't have a strong enough sense of myself she says there wow here we go the infamous christgau review and her reaction now what we're talking about here is the critic robert christgau have a listen to what he says about her one time robert christgau wrote a review of the no secrets album and it said that on you're so vain carly simon sounds like a horse whinnying Wow. And I and it just I mean that was one of a number of of just, you know, comments that just stabbed me and I and I read it and I wrote him a letter which was the only letter that I've written to a to a music critic who's written who's written a review about me. And I just said I wonder if you know that that people that you say these things about are really human and take these yes. things to heart and and that they're not just sort of you know, performers who are above it all and and ride ride around in limousines and don't care care about anything except for their next dollar. You know, people have hearts and 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 he wrote me a letter back saying that since that time he'd listened to the album some more and in fact he'd grown to like it. It was a very open letter. It was a very warm letter and and it was as if by my opening myself to him by making the contact to with him and making the admission that I was actually hurt that he'd sort of gotten in what he wanted to get in, which was the little stab, and now we could be friends, you know. And, but, and, and also in the letter, he also said something about James and myself coming from well-to-do families and that there, was, that there was something about the fact that we had come from rich parents that turned him off and that made him believe that we, that we couldn't have souls, or that there couldn't be any soul in our songs. Ouch. Oh, wow, boy. <laughs> Well, let's moving right, right along from the whinnying portion of the program. She talks about playing with a band for the new album. On about three or four of the tracks, I'm like the lead singer with a band, mm. which I haven't done done before. But the Doobie Brothers play on two tracks, and Little Feet play on two. Oh, out of sight! Two very good groups. Great groups, and and uh, and in each each case, well, I did one of the Doobie songs, and they did one of mine. Which um, one did you do of theirs? It, it keeps you running. Oh, out of sight. Mike McDonald. Yes. That. Mike is wonderful. And, and uh, in fact, he and I are going to be doing, doing some writing together this summer. Okay. They're a fine group. They're all just... That's true. Such good people, too. Such nice folks. They were, they were very, very willing to work for me for nothing. You know, I mean, they, they just love wow. to play. They love to play. And they, and they just want to, you know, they, they're not interested in what the end is going to be what the end what the end result they just want to play and have fun you know we've talked about this before christopher a lot of performers love playing with a band because it takes the pressure off of them i think it's also it's a different process usually because the bands you know the good ones are capable of playing live in the studio off the floor together right. as opposed to having to record one instrument at a time you know on different days and all of that and that's a very exciting feeling to be able to go in and cut a record um, with great musicians and just go one two three and then you play and and, and in this case she would be singing with the band as well although yeah. they probably recut the vocals later but still that that would be an exciting process for her yeah i bet like most songwriters simon uses her life as source material my sense of morality won't let me get away with not not being truthful i mean i it's also very hard for me to write um from anything except for my direct experience 
I, I usually use my own my own experiences or experiences of people that I relate to so closely and identify with so closely that I feel that I can put myself in their shoes and write a song from their place. And and the thing which interests me most in writing a song, lyrically anyway, is is to is to solve some kind of a problem or to put some truth across. Even if it's a mean part of myself that I don't admire, somehow if, if I can get it out in front and see that it's human and see that it's real, it's more acceptable to me and I can go on and learn, learn from it. If I write a good song, it's like a maturing process. It's kind of like, like scrounging around for, for the secret of the soul or something and then, and then the divulging catharsis. it. James is, is also very, very generous with, with, uh, with allowing me to be honest. And you can't limit anybody's fantasies. I, I mean, James can have as many fantasies as he wants ab about anything, and there's nothing that I can do about them or really would want to do about them. The can most that I can ask is that he share some of the better ones with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It's great to hear her talking in such positive terms about James Taylor, which I know her and James do not speak to this day, which is weird because she would love to have a, some sort of kind of civil relationship with him, but they don't apparently. And it's also mm. very interesting the way she talks in depth about the process of writing music. That does it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. We are now down to our last few episodes of the show. So let us know who you want to hear from. You can reach us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words or on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. We'd love to hear from you. Our show, as always, is produced by Adam Karsh. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Famous Lost Words is a production of iHeartRadio and Orbit Media. And don't forget, the best way to support our show is to listen to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. <laughs>